the, my hope this morning genuinely is that we can just hear from the Word and that the Spirit can, can move in our hearts in a new way, um, despite my flaws and despite whatever. So anyway, back in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a TV show called Happy Days. Has anybody here watched that show by any chance? Okay, a few of us have. I, I grew up in the 80s, so um, this was a little bit before my time, but there was two things in particular that I remembered about this show. The, it's a sitcom about a family in the 50s, and um, I remembered that Ron Howard, a teenage Ron Howard, starred in it, so it was really kind of cool, because it was like um, Opie from the Andy Griffith show, he's like all grown up, and that's kind of, whatever. <laughs> but the other thing that was most memorable to me was the character of the Fonz. Now, the Fonz is um, a leather jacket wearing, motorcycle riding, ladies man, and he is just like the epitome of cool. He's so cool that he can't do anything that's not cool. And so we've got a short video here about how that works out for him. But I tell you what, I mean, I'll think about it. <laughs> I'm even gonna have to practice this. <laughs> Ralph, I was ruined. <laughs> Kind of stuck in my throat there, stuck in my throat. Ralph, look. I was really. <laughs> I was not. You know about that Cynthia girl? You were absolutely right. I let a beautiful girl fog my brain. Well, it happens to the best of us. Yeah, but what I really want to say is that I am very, uh, <laughs> Richie, I am sincerely. <laughs> Fonz, you don't have to say you're sorry. Good, I won't. Fonzie, not join. I'm all packed. You told me it was the right thing to do. Look, I know what I told you to do, but when I told you to do that, I was rehearsing. <laughs> Ralph, I was <laughs> I was not exactly right. What do you mean, not right? I mean... Not right. I don't get you. You mean you were wrong? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Malfa. I was what you just said I was just then, yeah. Wrong? The Fonz wrong? Malf, look. <laughs> there is a first time for everything, huh? Well, you really came through for Ralph, Fonz. Yeah, but I want to tell you something. I still don't think I did anything wrong. <laughs> I can't say that word. Yeah. Apologizing is hard, right? Coming to terms with our own failures, um, admitting that we're wrong, that's really, really hard. Um, I'm thinking about our, our two youngest, Zoe and Kara. So they're at the point in life where they are just fighting nonstop. Every day, multiple times a day, there's some argument or some fight. And a few weeks ago, uh, we heard a scream from upstairs, and so we went upstairs, and sure enough, Zoe's just screaming and crying, and she's so upset, and she says, Kara, uh, my sister, bit me. And I said, Kara, did you bite her? And she said, no, no, I didn't bite her. And Zoe, yes, she did, and back and forth, you know, that's, that's the way little kids are. And eventually, Kara admitted, well, I did put my teeth on her. <laughs> and, well, you bit her. No, I didn't bite her, because I didn't close my mouth. <laughs> Just put my teeth on her. So it's hard to admit we're wrong. Well, this morning, we're going to be talking about a form of that. We're going to be talking about confession. And confession is when we have to acknowledge, when we have to respond to, we have to wrestle with sin in our life and, and admit that to God. And I just want to start out by just acknowledging that 
for many of us in here, I suspect, that talking about this may come with some baggage. Um, this may actually have already, like, you've already had some thoughts of, oh, great, it's going to be one of those sermons. And um, I just want to say, I don't, that's not the plan at all. That's not where I want to go. Um, for some of us, I suspect perhaps that um, sin is, is just something that we don't, we don't think a whole lot about. Um, it's just not something that's on top of mind. Perhaps you've been in contexts where, where people are um, actually discouraging that. Like, it's kind of an old idea. Why would you, why would you do that? It's kind of weird. But perhaps you're on the other extreme, which is more like me, where sin is something you think about a lot. And sometimes it can consume your thoughts. You, um, you just can feel a lot of shame. You can feel like a failure. And it's just it's a heavy, heavy topic. But I don't think either of these is what God really wants for us. On the one hand, like, we kind of have to talk about sin. That's, that's kind of the story of the Bible, right? It's a story about humanity has, has again and again how we've rebelled against God. That's the whole reason why Jesus came. He came to die and rise again to give us forgiveness of sin, to bring redemption, and to bring freedom in our life. So if we aren't going to talk about sin, if we're afraid of that or we just don't want to, like, it's like forgiveness doesn't really have much meaning or maybe doesn't have much power in our life. But on the other hand, if, if, uh, if talking about this is just bringing anxiety and like, yep, that's great, I'm a total failure again, I wonder if forgiveness is more of just an idea in our mind, and it's not something we experience and something we live and something we feel. And so the question this morning then is, like, how do we wrestle with our sin, because we have to, how do we do that, but be able to experience the freedom, the joy that God wants for us? How do we know and live in his forgiveness? So we're in a series this summer on Psalms, and this morning we're going to look at a psalm where it's, David's going to give us the answer, David's the author, and he's going to tell us that the key to experiencing God's forgiveness is the practice of confession. So would you turn with me to Psalm 32? It's going to be in Psalm 32. And, and if you're uh, willing and able, would you please stand with me as we read the first couple verses? All right, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So David's starting off by saying that blessed are those who are forgiven. Um, this word blessed, it's a common introduction throughout all the Psalms. It's something that Jesus picks up on in the Sermon on the Mount when he gives us the Beatitudes. It's blessedness. Blessed means the person who is in happy circumstance, a person who is in good fortune or who is living the good life. Now, like all good Hebrew poetry, this Psalm is going to have a lot of repetition in it. And normally the kind of repetition you see in this kind of poetry would be where you say a phrase and then you repeat it in a different way. And there's a lot of that in this Psalm. There's one interesting thing about this psalm is that there's a lot of repetition where David's going to give us an idea, and then he's going to give us three different words for that idea. And I think this is just an artistic device to try to draw our attention to something that's important, but it's also a way for him to take an idea and help build it up and help us see kind of the full, fullness of it. So here in the intro, we get three words for sin and three words for forgiveness. The words for sin are transgression, which means to break trust, to have rebellion against authority, he gives us the word sin, which means moral failure or to miss the target. And the word iniquity, 
which means crooked or distorted behavior, something that's bent out of shape. And I just want to plug real quick, um, the Bible Project does just some incredible videos, and they've done a video on each of these words, um, and there's just a lot of good things in there. They're just well done. So if you're at all interested, I'd suggest looking those up because they're, they're really well made. But taken together, this is just describing the full range and all dimensions of how humans sin and the evil in our hearts. And then David also gives us three words in this intro for forgiveness. He describes forgiveness as when sin is covered or that it doesn't appear on a record sheet. The sin isn't counted against someone as in the Lord puts it out of his mind and the sin is forgiven. Now this last word is really interesting. Um, in Hebrew, the word actually means to carry or to bear. And so there's kind of this weird connection, like what's, what's the connection between that and forgiveness? Well, if you'll bear with me for a minute, um, I want to dive into this word. And this isn't just meant to be like a, hey, cool, it's like a, a Bible nerd thing. We're just going to talk a lot about Hebrew or whatever. But it actually, the meaning of this word has a lot of significance for understanding this passage and understanding confession. So the word here is nasah, and it's used a lot in the Old Testament. If you see phrases like a person lifted up their eyes or lifted up their voice, that's usually nasah. And then it's also used a few times for forgiveness. Um, starting in Genesis 4, this is after Cain has just murdered his brother, and the Lord just gave him a, um, a judgment. He's pronounced a curse on him. And Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can nasah. It's too much for me to bear. So there's a sense in which the guilt and the consequence of his sin is weighty on him. Then later in Leviticus, God's giving instructions about preparation for the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is a really, really foundational idea in the Bible, because it's really setting the stage for how God brings redemption, how God brings forgiveness. So it's a really, really important part of the Old Testament. And in Leviticus, Leviticus 16.22, God's giving instructions to Aaron that he's supposed to lay his hands on the head of a live goat, and he confesses all the sins of the nation of Israel, and then he releases the goat into the wilderness. And it says, this goat will nassah all of their iniquities on itself. So this goat can bear the guilt of the people in some sense. And in a similar way, Isaiah picks up the same idea. And when he's talking about this coming messianic figure, this servant of the Lord who's going to make the people righteous, and he says that he will nassah their iniquities. First Peter takes all of this, takes all these ideas, um, takes the day, day of atonement, all this, and he mixes it together and he gives it to him, points us straight to Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, 24, he says that he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. So in Christ, we're forgiven, and that means that our guilt and, and shame and, and the consequence of our sin is weighing us down, and Christ lifts it up and takes it off of us. So we're free from that. And I can't help but wonder, so in Matthew 11, Jesus says that all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him, and his burden is light, his yoke is light, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I can't help but wonder, because normally we interpret that passage as talking about like the, the burdens of this world or just the burdens of life or whatever. I can't help but wonder if there's a sense of this there too, where his invitation is all of you who are weighed down by the guilt of your sin, come to me, because in me, there's no more guilt. This is lifted up. You have true forgiveness. So this is the forgiveness of God, that in Christ we have access to true and lasting forgiveness of sin. So certainly, blessed is the person whose sin is forgiven. But David adds one more thing in the intro about this blessed person. He says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
And it's kind of an interesting phrase, because my first thought would be is, well, he's just talking about someone who's honest, right? This is a person who doesn't have any deceit. But I think David's got something very specific in mind, and he's going to explain what that is from a story in his own life. So let's continue reading in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David's describing an experience before he's forgiven. And it's his time of very intense guilt. He's groaning under the weight of his guilt, so much that it feels like his bones are being crushed, that they're just wasting away. His strength is fading under this weight, so much like it's being dried up in the heat of the summer. And it's really important here. David's describing guilt, not shame. Um, I appreciated that, I think Olivia made a distinction about this a couple weeks ago, but Greg Tanelshoff says that guilt takes aim at behavior, where shame takes aim at the self. When I feel guilty, my feeling is directed at something that I've done. But when I feel shame, the direct, my feeling is directed at myself. So the distinction is, is that guilt is something I've done wrong, but shame is something is wrong with me. And I think David's clearly describing the first. This is about something he's done, and he's feeling the weight of the consequence of the guilt of that. And the really important phrase here is, in his guilt, that he's remaining silent. And so it's not just that he's being quiet, just to be quiet or whatever, but it's that there's an intention here in his silence. He's intentionally hiding. He's intentionally trying to avoid being exposed, and he's not willing to acknowledge what he's done. And isn't this like a common way that we respond whenever we do something wrong or whenever we feel guilty, is we try to hide. Um, my girls, so a couple of, um, they're the only ones I have stories about, I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> that's just all we got. Um, a couple of months ago, we moved some furniture away from the wall, and wouldn't you know, there's like this amazing drawing and crayon, just thoroughly all the colors, it was amazing. And so we got the kids and we said, okay, so who did this? And wouldn't you know, nobody said anything. Like they were all just quiet as could be. Like it's the first time ever. It's... <laughs> but this is a very normal thing, right? When, when we feel guilty, we've done something wrong, we want to hide it. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They sinned, and when the Lord came, their first response is to hide. They didn't want to be found out. And what's interesting about this passage is, is David describes this experience of guilt as if God's hand is pressing on him, which it seems like it's kind of an odd thing. Like, we don't normally think of God um, inflicting this kind of experience on somebody. But I think what David's envisioning here, what he's experiencing, is what Hebrews 12 refers to as the Lord's discipline. And so in Hebrews 12.10, it's described this way. For they, our parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, the Lord, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is how good parents would be training their kids, is that we inflict some form of control and discipline in their lives to help direct them towards um, what we think is best for them. It means we're introducing a small amount of discomfort in our life. Now, in the moment, the kid doesn't think it's small. I, I know I certainly didn't when I was a kid. But we're trying to encourage them towards what we think will bring life to them. And so what David's experiencing here is discipline from our perfectly, perfect, heavenly, loving Father. So it's, it doesn't have all the baggage that perhaps our, our human parental interactions might have. But this is a perfect Father lovingly disciplining him. And David relents. Eventually, it's too much. He gives in. He's no longer going to hide from God. And so he confesses. So we're going to continue in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. 
I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. So as he's confessing, David gives us three words for his confession. First, he acknowledges his sin. He's honest and he admits what he's done. Second, as he stops covering his iniquity, he's no longer silent and hiding, and he confesses. So this isn't just a surface or half-hearted apology. This is a deep and genuine admission that he was wrong. And whenever we confess or whenever we apologize to another person, there's this, this, this dynamic of just being people where there can be a sometimes long period of just that relationship trying to be restored. But what's interesting here is with David, when he apologizes, when he confesses to God, he's immediately restored. God immediately forgives him. God lifts the weight of his sin, and, and he's free. Now, the, what's important is, is David's free from his guilt. It's not necessarily the case he's free from the consequence of his sin. We know from, from David's life, he did several things that were wrong, and some of those things had just dramatic and drastic consequences in his life. But the most important thing here is, is that when he confessed that he's free of the guilt, he's forgiven. He's moved from a place of hiding from God to now hiding in God. He's returned to a place where he's dwelling in the Lord, he's in the presence of God, and he's in this place of safety and protection. And he describes this in three ways. He imagines the, the troubles of life approaching as like a flood water, and he says that, that in, in the Lord, he's, in, he's his hiding place. He preserves us and he surrounds us with those who are shouting and singing of his deliverance. So David is forgiven. And the cool thing is, now in the psalm, we get a response. So continuing in verse 8. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. Do not be like the horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shouts of joy, all you upright of heart. So this appears to be the voice of God. He's responding to David's confession, and he tells us why this point of discipline happened. It's because God wants us to follow his way, and he gives us another set of three. He gives us three words to describe um, his, his role in that, that he wants to instruct us. He wants to make us wise and offer insight. He wants to teach us. He wants to offer direction in his way. And he wants to counsel us and give us advice. This is a common theme in the Bible, right? That God has a way that he wants us to live. He wants us to follow him. He has a way for us that leads to life. And it's a way for us to dwell in his presence. That's why he gives us the Bible, because that's a way for him to teach us this way. That's why he gives us his spirit, like we've been learning in John 14, so that he can encourage us, he can guide us and convict us in that. And he disciplines us to help us stay on that path. And the psalm gives us here this analogy of a horse or a mule that needs a bit and bridle. And the idea is, so the bit and bridle, if you don't know, it's something that sits in the horse's mouth so that the rider can actually direct its head in the direction it wants it to go. And the thought here is, is that the animal doesn't understand what it needs to do, where it needs to go, and so it needs a strong coercion or control to get it to move in the right direction. So there, in a sense, this animal is, is stubborn. thinking about this analogy, what comes to mind for me at least is, so we have these two cats. 
And these cats are lucky that my girls love them. <laughs> they are just a pain. It's a constant source of headache. We have problems with where they use the bathroom. We have problems with where they eat, problems where they scratch. It's just a constant source of trouble, like every day. And there's some times where it's like, I just wish that like my kid, I could sit down with you and talk to you and explain to you why this behavior is wrong and why you need to change. And maybe you tell me what's going on, but they're, <laughs> they're dumb animals, right? I mean, sorry. They just, they don't understand. They don't have that capacity. And so our only recourse is to put controls in their environment, to make ways so they only have one option, which is a good way. But God doesn't want us to be like that. God doesn't want us to be people who, who live our life without understanding, who are foolish, who just are stubborn and just doing whatever we want. That's all we want to be about. This isn't the way of life. This psalm describes that as the way of sorrow, the way of wickedness, or the way of hostility to God. And the key phrase in this passage is, the one who trusts in the Lord. And I think that the issue is, is that sin fundamentally boils down to us choosing our own way, choosing what we think is best. So we're not really trusting in God in his way. But what this means is, though, if, if we have even a small unconfessed sin in our heart, this could be a seed for something that would grow into much greater problems. So this is why it's so important that we practice confession, that we respond to the Lord's discipline quickly, because with confession, we're actually reorienting our heart in a way that we can reaffirm that trust in God. So confession is an opportunity for us to let go of habits, desires, values, circumstances, whatever it is we're holding on to that's not God's way. It's an opportunity for us to let go of that. And it's a way for us to, to choose God's way. It's a way for us to surrender to God's way. It's a way for us to practice trust in him. And the cool thing is, is this psalm describes this person who trusts in the Lord as being surrounded by the love of God. It's like God's love is just hugging you. And I think it's the same idea we've been talking about um, these last few months with John 14 and 15 about abiding in God. It's that when we, are, when we are following God's way, when we're trusting him, then we're abiding in his love. Um, I really have appreciated just all that we've had to say about uh, the John 14 and 15, but there's just this really cool analogy of where in John 14 it says, if we're obeying Jesus, if we're obeying his commands, if we're loving him, then he makes a dwelling with us. And then it says, and so let's dwell with him, let's abide with him. There's this reciprocity there. It's really, really awesome. And the idea is that we can abide in his love, we can abide in his presence by following his teaching, by obeying his commands, and just by trusting him completely in our life. So David wraps up the psalm, and he says that this is God's way, that God's way is the way of true joy. He gives us his final group of three. It's three commands for the righteous, for those who are trusting God. He says, be glad in the Lord, rejoice Shout for joy. The point is that those who are trusting God, who are following his way, we know true joy. This means when we practice confession, we can experience a joy that comes by knowing God's forgiveness. So I think David's first statement is certainly very true here. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. Now, we could just stop there. That's a lot of really good material. But as I've been thinking about this passage, as I've been studying, um, I just keep coming up across um, just the same theme, just the same idea. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And this idea is, is that for us today, there's 
a bit of a challenge to what David's talking about. There's a bit of a barrier for us to really experiencing what he's talking about. And the challenge is, is I suspect for most of us, certainly for me, when we say the word confession, we jump right away to the idea of private confession. And it's not that that's bad. Private confession is a great thing. Spending time with the Lord, having the Spirit switch our heart, like that's a really fundamental part of confession. I just don't think it's the full meaning of what David has in mind here. We have to remember, for David in his context, when he's talking about sin, when he's talking about forgiveness, he's in the context of the sacrificial system. In other words, he does a specific sin, and there's a very specific sacrifice he has to offer publicly. So when he's offering that sacrifice, everyone around him is saying, yep, I know what he did. <laughs> and, and the New Testament still has this idea of the value of confession and community. James 5.16 makes it really clear. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And I think here at Journey, we're really good at praying for one another. But the idea of confessing to one another, at least for me, that's just a really unsettling idea. Perhaps it's just because, um, you know, in our culture, we're very individualistic. Perhaps it's a desire for privacy or a fear of being rejected, or perhaps it's just pride. But confession together in community, that actually feels much more intimidating to me than just confession to God, which if you think about it, it's kind of crazy. Like the creator of the universe is easier to admit that I'm wrong with than my neighbor or my friend. So I think private confession is good, but I think it offers some challenges for where we're at. And the, the first challenge is that it's just really easy in private confession to let my sin still remain at least a little bit hidden. And the reality is it's because I'm alone in that. Now you can say, yes, I'm in the presence of God, and yes, that's true. But in a sense, still, I'm physically just still alone, at least for me. Maybe, maybe Jesus appears, I don't know, that'd be weird. But. <laughs> and so because I'm alone, sometimes at least, private confession won't result in the deep change in my heart that I need. But when we practice confession with another believer, it's exposing our sin, it's exposing our faults in a, just a really tangible and real way. And so it makes confession more real because we're actually just dragging that sin into the light. And in a lot of ways, um, I think confessing with another, it's a way just to make sure that we're not like even hiding a little bit in our hearts still. I love the way that Bonhoeffer describes it. He says, a man who confesses his sin in the presence of another knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I'm by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of the brother, the sin has been brought into the light. So that's the first challenge with private confession. But the second challenge is, it's also very easy to not feel forgiven. And I'll be honest, this is one I struggle with, is when I'm confessing to the Lord, there's times where I don't feel a change. And in fact, the next day or the next hour, I can still feel doubt and still feel shame and still feel like a failure. Richard Foster describes this experience. He says, we have prayed, even begged for forgiveness. And though we hope we have been forgiven, we sense no release. We doubt our forgiveness and despair at our confession. We fear perhaps we have only made a confession to ourselves and not to God. I just want to start by saying that this experience of, of shame, this experience of failure, that's a complicated thing. There's a lot of dimensions to what might be happening there. 
But when we confess with another believer, I think that that can bring a kind of absolution because it's giving the other person an opportunity to affirm who we are in Christ. It's an opportunity to affirm what 1 John 1.9 says, that if we, confess with our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when another believer confesses their sins, it's an opportunity to say, yes, you are forgiven. Yes, Jesus is taking this burden off of you. Yes, you are free. Foster continues, and he says, Jesus has given us his priesthood, the ministry of making that sacrifice real in the hearts and lives of other human beings. It's through the voice of our brothers and sisters that the word of forgiveness is heard and that it takes root in our lives. But doing this, um, it's not easy, and it takes a lot of vulnerability. And it, we're, we're exposing some of our deepest parts of ourself. So to do this, it requires a relationship where we have trust, a relationship where we have safety, and it requires just that true Christian fellowship. But the interesting thing is, um, when you practice confession in fellowship, it actually can deepen and strengthen that fellowship. It, it brings a, a deepness and a fullness to that. Um, Dallas Willard describes that. He says, confession alone makes deep fellowship possible. And the lack of it explains much of the superficial quality so commonly found in our church associations. What makes confession bearable? It's fellowship. So there's an essential reciprocity between these two disciplines. So his point is, is that to be able to confess to another believer, that's, that's a really, really hard thing to do. But if you have that relationship, if you have Christian fellowship, then that can be bearable. But then when you do that, that actually builds back and deepens that relationship. So practicing confession together, I think it's a way for us to genuinely experience God's forgiveness. Whether we struggle with acknowledging our sin or whether we struggle with feeling free and, and forgiven. And I think it's a means for God's spirit to move in new and more profound ways in our life. And I've experienced this. So here at Journey, we have um, a couple of, it's an informal thing, we have a couple of groups and they're called discipleship bands. And this is a very, um, it's a very low bar to entry kind of approach towards discipleship. And the idea is that it's just a few people, two to four people, um, you get together on a, say, like a weekly basis. And all you have to do is just talk through a couple of questions. So each person talks through the question of, how is it with your soul? How are you doing? What are your struggles? What are your successes? And how might the Spirit and Scripture be speaking in your life? That's it. Just talk for 15, 20 minutes about those questions. It's really easy. And the cool thing is with this group, it's the same group of people and you're meeting on a regular basis. And as you do that week after week, it begins to build relationship, begins to build trust and begin to build fellowship. And so the idea is once you start to build that trust, then there's two more questions that you can talk through. Do you have any sin that you want to confess? Are there any secrets or hidden things you'd like to share? And so this last year, I got to be a part of one of those groups. And I can tell you, like, I've been a Christian for a long time. And this last year, I have genuinely experienced God's forgiveness in a way that I had not known before. And in particular, I've experienced freedom from sin, freedom that I didn't think was possible. There is just something powerful about meeting with fellow believers on a regular basis, about sharing life, about building trust, about having other people speak God's truth into your life and remind you of who you are in Christ. 
So this morning, I'd like to suggest, if, if this is at all interesting to you, if you'd like to learn more, talk to Mitchell. We, we don't have this complex program or anything like that, but Mitchell can tell you more about these groups and maybe plug you into some, to a couple people to do something like that. So perhaps that's the next step for you. Perhaps a next step for you is that you already have a relationship like this, and the next step could just be to practice confession more. But perhaps you're saying, this is all a lot. <laughs> this is just a lot to take in. Perhaps the good next step would just be to be building a habit and routine of private confession to the Lord. That's a great next step too. I think the hope, my hope is, is that all of us can lean in and, 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 and confess to the Lord. Because I think that David's shown us this is key to following Jesus. And it's key to experiencing God's forgiveness so that we actually are wrestling with our sin, but we're actually walking away feeling forgiven and feeling free. So let's be a people who listen to the instruction of the Lord. Let's be a people who are quick to surrender when he disciplines us. Let's be a people who follow God's way and abide in Christ and be a community who practices confession together. Because blessed are those who see whose sin is forgiven. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for today. And Lord, I just thank you for this, this family to be able to gather together with and learn. And I just pray, Lord, that you would move on our hearts. Um, just continue to, to help us grow to be the people that you want us to be. Help us to know your love. Help us to know your forgiveness. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to grow deeper in being able to, to confess to you and to confess together so that we can, we can follow you and we can be your church. In your name.